Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. John Calvin, A Treatise on Relics, Part 2 The principal relics of our Lord are, however, those relating to his passion and death. And the first of them is the cross. I know that it is considered to be a certain fact that it was found by Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine. And I know also that some ancient doctors have written about the manner in which the discovery was certified that it was the true cross upon which our Lord had suffered. I think, however, that it was a foolish curiosity and a silly and inconsiderate devotion which prompted Helena to seek for that cross. But let us take for granted that it was a laudable act and that our Lord had declared by a miracle that it was the real cross and let us consider only the state of the case in our own time. It is maintained undoubtingly that the cross found by Helena is still at Jerusalem, though this is contradicted by ecclesiastical history, which relates that Helena took a piece of it and sent it to her son the emperor, who set it upon a column of porphyry, in the centre of a public place or square, whilst the other portion of it was enclosed by her in a silver case and entrusted to the keeping of the Bishop of Jerusalem. Consequently, either the before-mentioned statement or this historical record must be false. Now, let us consider how many relics of the true cross there are in the world. An account of those merely with which I am acquainted would fill a whole volume, for there is not a church from a cathedral to the most miserable abbey or parish church that does not contain a piece. Large splinters of it are preserved in various places, as for instance in the Holy Chapel at Paris, whilst at Rome they show a crucifix of considerable size made entirely, they say, from this wood. In short, if we were to collect all these pieces of the true cross exhibited in various parts, they would form a whole ship's cargo. The Gospel testifies that the cross could be borne by one single individual. How glaring, then, is the audacity now to pretend to display more relics of wood than 300 men could carry. As an explanation of this, they have invented the tale that whatever quantity of wood may be cut off from this true cross, its size never decreases. This is, however, such a clumsy and silly imposture that the most superstitious may see through it. The most absurd stories are also told respecting the manner in which various pieces of the cross were conveyed to the places where they are now shown. Thus, for instance, we are informed that they were brought by angels or had fallen from heaven. By these means they seduce ignorant people into idolatry, for they are not satisfied with deceiving the credulous by affirming that pieces of common wood are portions of the true cross, but they pretend that it should be worshipped, which is a diabolical doctrine, expressly reproved by St. Ambrose as a pagan superstition. After the cross comes the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, which was placed upon it by order of Pilate. The town of Toulouse claims the possession of this relic, but this is contradicted by Rome, where it is shown in the Church of the Holy Cross. If these relics were properly examined, it would be seen that the claims of both parties are equally absurd. There is a still greater contradiction concerning the nails of the cross. I shall name those with which I am acquainted, and I think even a child could see how the devil has been mocking the world by depriving it of the power of discernment on this point. 
If the ancient writers, such as the ecclesiastical historian Theodorite, tell the truth, Historia Tripartia lib too. Helena caused one of the nails to be set in the helmet of her son Constantine, and two others in the bridle of his horse. St. Ambrose, however, relates this differently, saying that one of the nails was set in the crown of Constantine, a second was converted into a bridle bit for his horse, and the third was retained by Helena. Thus we see that 1,200 years ago there was a difference of opinion on this subject, and how can we tell what has become of the nail since that time? Now they boast at Milan that they possess the nail which was in Constantine's bridle. This claim is, however, opposed by the town of Carpentras. St. Ambrose does not say that the nail was attached to the bridle, but that the bit was made from it, a circumstance which does not agree with the claims of Milan or Carpentras. There is, moreover, one nail in the church of St. Helena at Rome, and another in that of the Holy Cross in the same city. There is a nail at Siena, and another at Venice. Germany possesses two at Cologne and Treves. In France there is one in the Holy Chapel at Paris, another in the same city at the Church of the Carmelites, a third is at Saint-Denis, a fourth at Bruges, a fifth at the Abbey of Tenaille in the Santonia, a sixth at Draguinal, the whole number making fourteen, shown in different towns and countries. Each place exhibiting these nails produces certain proofs to establish the genuineness of its relic, but all these claims may be placed on a par as equally absurd. Then follows the iron spear with which our saviour's side was pierced. It could be but one, and yet by some extraordinary process it seems to have been multiplied into four. For there is one at Rome, one at the Holy Chapel at Paris, one at the Abbey of Tenaille in Saint-Ogne, and one at Selve near Bordeaux. With regard to the crown of thorns, one must believe that the slips of which it was plaited had been planted and had produced an abundant growth, for otherwise it is impossible to understand how it could have increased so much. A third part of this crown is preserved at the Holy Chapel at Paris, three thorns at the Church of the Holy Cross, and a number of them at St. Eustace in the same city. There are a good many of the thorns at Siena, one at Vicenza, four at Bourges, three at Besançon, three at Port Royal, and I do not know how many at Salvatierra in Spain, two at St. James of Compostela, three at Albi, and one at least in the following places. Toulouse, Masson, Charroux in Poitiers, at Clary, saint Flor and St. Maximin in Provence, in the Abbey of La Salle at St. Martin of Noyon, and so on. It must be observed that the early church has made no mention of this crown, consequently the root that produced all these relics must have grown a long time after the Passion of our Lord. With regard to the coat, woven throughout without a seam, for which the soldiers at the cross cast lots, there is one to be seen at Argentil near Paris, and another at Deves in Germany. It is now time to treat of the suddery, about which relic they have displayed their folly even more than in the affair of the holy coat. For besides the suddery of Veronica, which is shown in the church of St. Peter at Rome, it is the boast of several towns that they each possess one, as for instance, Carcassonne, Nice, Aix-la-Chapelle, Treves, Besançon, without reckoning the fragments to be seen in various places. Now I ask whether those persons were not bereft of their senses who could take long pilgrimages, at much expense and fatigue, in order to see sheets of the reality of which there were no reasons to believe, but many to doubt. 
for whoever admitted the reality of one of these sudderies, shown in so many places, must have considered the rest as wicked impostures set up to deceive the public by the pretense that they were each the real sheet in which Christ's body had been wrapped. But it is not only that the exhibitors of this one and the same relic give each other mutually the lie, they are, what is far more important, positively contradicted by the gospel. The evangelists who speak of all the women who followed our Lord to the place of crucifixion make not the least mention of that Veronica who wiped his face with a kerchief. It was in truth a most marvellous and remarkable event, worthy of being recorded that the face of Jesus Christ was then miraculously imprinted upon the cloth, a much more important thing to mention than the mere circumstance that certain women had followed Jesus Christ to the place of crucifixion without meeting with any miracle. And indeed, had such a miracle taken place, we might consider the evangelists wanting in judgment in not relating the most important facts. The same observations are applicable to the tale of the sheet in which the body of our Lord was wrapped. How is it possible that those sacred historians who carefully related all the miracles that took place at Christ's death should have omitted to mention one so remarkable as the likeness of the body of our Lord remaining on its wrapping sheet? This fact undoubtedly deserved to be recorded. St. John, in his Gospel, relates even how St. Peter, having entered the sepulchre, saw the linen clothes lying on one side and the napkin that was about his head on the other. But he does not say that there was a miraculous impression of our Lord's figure upon these clothes. And it is not to be imagined that he would have omitted to mention such a work of God if there had been anything of this kind. Another point to be observed is that the evangelists do not mention that either of the disciples or the faithful women who came to the sepulchre had removed the clothes in question, but on the contrary, their account seems to imply that they were left there. Now, the sepulchre was guarded by soldiers, and consequently the clothes were in their power. Is it possible that they would have permitted the disciples to take them away as relics, since these very men had been bribed by the Pharisees to perjure themselves by saying that the disciples had stolen the body of our Lord? I should conclude with a convincing proof of the audacity of the Papists. Wherever the holy suddery is exhibited, they show a large sheet with the full-length likeness of a human body on it. Now, St. John's Gospel, chapter 19, says that Christ was buried according to the manner of the Jews, and what was their custom? This may be known by their present custom on such occasions, as well as from their books, which describe the ancient ceremony of interment, which was to wrap the body in a sheet to the shoulders and to cover the head with a separate cloth. This is precisely how the evangelist described it, saying that St. Peter saw on one side the clothes with which the body had been wrapped, and on the other the napkin from about his head. In short, either St. John is a liar, or all those who boast of possessing the holy sudary are convicted of falsehood and deceit. In the church of St. John of the Lateran at Rome, they show the reed which the soldiers, mocking Christ in the house of Pilate, placed in his hand, and with which they afterwards smote him on the head. In the church of the Holy Cross at Rome, they show the sponge which was filled with vinegar and given him to drink during his passion. Now, I would ask, how were these things obtained? They must have been formerly in the hands of infidels. Could they have delivered them up to the apostles to be made relics of? Or did they preserve them themselves for future times? 
What a sacrilege to make use of the name of Jesus Christ in order to invent such absurd fables. And what can we think of the pieces of silver received by Judas for betraying our Saviour? The Gospel says that he returned this money to the chief priests who brought with it the potter's field for a burial place for strangers. By what means were these pieces of silver obtained from the seller of that field? It would be too absurd to maintain that this was done by the disciples of Jesus Christ, and if we are told that they were found a long time afterwards, it would be still less probable, as this money must have passed through many hands. It is therefore necessary to prove that either the person who sold his field did so for the purpose of obtaining the silver pieces in order to make relics of them, or that he afterwards sold them to the faithful. Nothing of this kind has ever been mentioned by the primitive church. To the same class of impositions belong the steps of Pilate's tribunal, which are exhibited in the church of St. John of the Lateran, as well as the column to which Christ was fastened during the flagellation, shown in the church of St. Presidio in the same city, besides two other pillars round which he was conducted on his way to Calvary. From whence these columns were taken, it is impossible to conjecture. I only know that the Gospel, in relating that Jesus Christ was scourged, does not mention that he was fastened to a column or post. It really appears as if these impostors had no other aim than to promulgate the most fallacious statements, and, indeed, they carried this to such a degree of extravagance that they were not ashamed to make a relic of the tail of the ass upon which our Lord entered into Jerusalem, which they show at Genoa. One really cannot tell which is the most wonderful, the folly and credulity of those who devoutly receive such mockeries, or the boldness of those who put them forth. It may be said that it is not likely all those relics should be preserved without some sort of correct history being kept of them. To this I reply that such evident falsehoods can never bear the slightest resemblance to truth, how much soever their claims may be supported by the names of Constantine, Louis IX, or of some popes, for they will never be able to prove that Christ was crucified with fourteen nails, or that a whole hedge was used to plait his crown of thorns, that the iron of the spear with which his side was pierced had given birth to three other similar pieces of iron, that his coat was multiplied threefold, and that from his single sudarium a number of others have issued, or that Jesus Christ was buried in a manner different from that described in the Gospels. Now, if I were to show a piece of lead, saying, This piece of gold was given me by a certain prince, I should be considered a madman, and my words would not transmute the lead into gold. Thus it is precisely when people say, This thing was sent over by Godfrey de Bouillon after his conquest of Judea. Our reason shows us that this is an evident lie. Are we then to be so much imposed upon by words as to resist the evidence of our senses? Moreover, in order to show how much reliance may be placed on the statements which are given about these relics, we must remark that those considered the principal and most authentic at Rome have been, according to those accounts, brought thither by Vespasian and Titus. Now this is such a clumsy fabrication. They might just as well tell us that the Turks went to Jerusalem in order to carry off the true cross to Constantinople. Vespasian conquered and ravaged a part of Judea before he was elected emperor, and his son Titus completed that conquest by the capture and destruction of Jerusalem. They were both pagans and had no more regard for Christ than if he had never existed on earth. 
Consequently, to maintain that Vespasian and Titus carried off the above-mentioned relics to Rome is even a more flagrant falsehood than the stories about Godfrey of Bouillon and Saint Louis. Moreover, it is well known that the times of Saint Louis were very suspicious. That monarch would have accepted as a relic and worshipped anything that was represented to him as having belonged to the Holy Virgin. And indeed, King Louis and other crusaders sacrificed their bodies and their goods, as well as a great portion of their country's substance, merely to bring back with them heaps of foolish trifles, having been taught to consider them as the most precious jewels in the world. It must be here mentioned that in Greece, Asia Minor and other eastern countries, people show, with full assurance, counterparts old rubbish which those poor idolaters imagine they possess in their own country. How are we to judge between the two contending parties? One party says that these relics were brought from the east, but the Christians now inhabiting those lands maintain that the same relics are still in their possession and they laugh at our pretensions. How can it be decided betwixt right and wrong without an inquiry, which will never take place? Methinks the best plan is to let the dispute rest as it is, without caring for either side of the question. The last relics pertaining to Jesus Christ are those which relate to the time after his resurrection, as, for instance, a piece of broiled fish which St. Peter presented to him on the seashore. This fish must have been strongly spiced and prepared in some extraordinary manner to be preserved for so long a period. But seriously, is it likely that the apostles would have made a relic of a portion of the fish which they had prepared for their dinner? Indeed, I think that whoever will not perceive this to be an open mockery of God deserves not to be reasoned with. There is also the miraculous blood which has flowed from several hosts, as, for instance, in the churches of saint jean en Grève at Paris and at saint jean d'Angely at Dijon and in many other places. They show even the penknife with which the host at Paris was pierced by a Jew and which the poor Parisians hold in as much reverence as the host itself. For this they were well blamed by a Roman Catholic priest who declared them to be worse than the Jews for worshipping the knife with which the precious body of Christ was pierced. I think we may apply this observation to the nails, the spear and the thorns, and consequently those who worship those instruments used at our Lord's crucifixion are more wicked than the Jews who employed them for that purpose. There are many other relics belonging to this period of our Lord's history, but it would be tedious to enumerate them all. I shall therefore pass them over and say a few words respecting his images, not the common ones made by painters and carvers, but those considered as actual relics and held in particular veneration. Some of these images are believed to have been made in a miraculous manner, like those shown at Rome in the Church of the Blessed Virgin, in Portici, at St. John of the Lateran, at Lucca, and other places, and which they pretend were painted by angels. I think it would be ridiculous to undertake a serious refutation of these absurdities, the profession of angels not being that of painters, and our Lord Jesus Christ desired to be known and remembered otherwise than by carnal images. Eusebius, it is true, relates in his ecclesiastical history that our Lord sent the likeness of his face to King Abgarus. But the authenticity of this account has no better proof than that of a fairy tale. Yet, supposing it were true, how came this likeness to be found at Rome, out of Abgarus's possession, where people boast to have it now? Eusebius does not mention where it was in his time, 
but he merely relates the story as having happened a long time before he wrote. We must therefore suppose that this image reappeared after a lapse of many centuries and came from Edessa to Rome. They have forged not only images of Christ's body, but also copies of the cross. Thus they pretend at Brescia to have the identical cross which appeared to the Emperor Constantine. This claim is, however, stoutly opposed by the town of Constance, whose inhabitants maintain that the above-mentioned cross is preserved in their town and are not at Brescia. But let us leave the contending parties to settle this point between themselves, though it would be easy enough to show the absurdity of their pretensions, because the cross which, according to some writers, appeared to Constantine was not a material cross, but simply a vision.